But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. The Lord reassured Moses, Who hath made man's mouth? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. In effect, the Lord told Moses, You can do it. And you know what? So can we. Let me share four principles that will help in our rescue efforts. Principle number one, we must not delay going to the rescue. Elder Alejandro Patania, former Area 70, relates the story of his younger brother Daniel, who sailed out to sea to go fishing with his crew. After a time, Daniel received an urgent warning that a major storm was rapidly approaching. Immediately, Daniel and his crew started for port. As the storm intensified, the engine of a nearby fishing boat ceased to function. Daniel's crew hooked a cable to the disabled boat and began towing it to safety. They radioed for help, knowing that with the increasing storm they needed immediate assistance. As loved ones anxiously waited, Representatives from the Coast Guard, the Fishermen's Association, and the Navy met to decide the best rescue strategy. Some wanted to leave right away, but were told to wait for a plan. While those in the storm continued pleading for help, the representatives continued meeting, trying to agree on the proper protocol and a plan. When a rescue group was finally organized, one last desperate call came. The raging storm had broken the cable between the two boats, and Daniel's crew was going back to see if they could save their fellow fishermen. In the end, both ships sank, and their crews, including Elder Potania's brother, Daniel, were lost. Elder Pothania compared this tragedy to the Lord's admonition when he said, Ye have not strengthened or brought again that which was driven away, or sought that which was lost, and I will require my flock at your hand. Elder Pothania explained that while we must be organized in our councils, quorums, auxiliaries, and even as individuals, we must not delay going to the rescue. Sometimes many weeks pass as we talk about how to help families or individuals who are in special need. We deliberate about who will visit them and the approach to take. Meanwhile, our lost brothers and sisters continue needing and sometimes even calling and pleading for help. We must not delay. Principle number two, we must never give up. President Monson, who has sounded the clarion call to go to the rescue, noted, Our members need to be reminded that it is never too late when it comes to our less active members who could have been considered a hopeless cause. End quote. Like many of you, some with whom I have shared the gospel are soon baptized or activated, and others, such as my non-member friend Tim and his less active wife Charlene, take much more time. For over 25 years, I engaged Tim in gospel conversations and took Tim and Charlene to temple open houses. Others joined the rescue. However, Tim declined each invitation made to meet with the missionaries. One weekend, I was assigned to preside at a state conference. I had asked the state president to fast and pray about whom we should visit. I was shocked when he handed me the name of my friend Tim. When Tim's bishop and the stake president I knocked on the door, Tim opened it. He looked at me, looked at the bishop, and then said, Bishop, I thought you told me you were going to bring somebody special. <laughs> then Tim laughed and said, Come on in, Merv. A miracle occurred that day. Tim has now been baptized. And he and Charlene have been sealed in the temple. We must never give up. Principle number three, how great shall be your joy if you bring save it be one soul unto Christ. 
Many years ago in a general conference, I spoke of how Jose de Sosa Marquez understood the words of the Savior that if any man among you be strong in spirit, let him take with him him that is weak, that he may become strong also. Brother Marquez knew the name of every sheep in his priest corps and realized that Fernando was missing. He hunted for Fernando at his house, then at a friend's home, and even went to the beach. He finally found Fernando surfing in the ocean. He did not hesitate until the boat sank, like in Daniel's story. He immediately entered the water to rescue his lost sheep, bringing him home rejoicing. And then he ensured, through continual ministering, that Fernando never again would leave the fold. Now allow me to update you on what has happened since Fernando was rescued and to share the joy that came from rescuing just one lost sheep. Fernando married his sweetheart Marie in the temple. They now have five children and 13 grandchildren, all of whom are active in the Church. Many other relatives and their families have also joined the Church. Together they have submitted thousands of their ancestors' names to receive temple ordinances, and the blessings just keep coming. Fernando is now serving as bishop for the third time. And he continues to rescue, just like he was rescued. He recently shared in our ward we have 32 active young men of Aaronic priesthood, 21 of whom were rescued in the last 18 months. As individuals, families, quorums, auxiliaries, classes, and home and visiting teachers, we can do that. Principle number four, no matter our age, we are all called to go to the rescue. President Henry B. Irene declared, whatever our age, capacity, church calling, or location, we are as one called to the work to help the Savior in his harvest of souls until he comes again. Each day, more and more of our children, our youth, our young single adults, and our adult members of all ages are heeding the Savior's clarion call to go to the rescue. Thank you for your efforts. Allow me to share some examples. Amy, age seven, invited her friend Ariana and her family to her annual primary sacrament meeting program. A few months later, Ariana and her family were baptized. Alan, a young single adult, felt inspired to share the Church videos, Mormon messages, and verses of Scripture with all of his friends using social media. Sister Reeves began sharing the gospel with each telemarketer who called. James invited his non-member friend Shane to his daughter's baptism. Spencer sent his less active sister a link to President Russell M. Nelson's conference address and reported, She read the talk, and a window was opened. The Lord has provided all the tools necessary for us to go to the rescue of all our less active and non-member friends. We can all do it. I invite each of you to heed the Savior's call to go to the rescue. We can do it. I solemnly testify that I know Jesus is a good shepherd and that He loves us and He will bless us as we go to the rescue. I know He lives. I know it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A good friend of mine was a church member, tried for years to teach me the gospel of eternal families. It wasn't until attending the San Paulo Temple open house in October 1978, as I entered in the ceiling room, that the doctrine of eternal families came into my heart. And for days I prayed to know if it was to know if this was what church was the true church. I was not religious, but had been raised by parents who were, and had seen what good was good in other religions. At that point in my life, I thought all religions were acceptable to God. After my visit to the temple, open house, I sought an answer through prayer. Having faith 
and sure confidence that God would answer me, which was his church on earth. After a great spiritual struggle, I finally received a clear answer. I was invited to be baptized, which finally happened October 31, 1978, denied before the temple, São Paulo Temple dedication. I realized that the Lord knew and cared about me as to answer my prayer. On next morning, my wife and I went to São Paulo to attend a dedicatory session of the temple. We were there but did not really know how to appreciate that wonderful opportunity yet. The following day, we attended the area conference. We had begun our journey in the church, and we found good friends who welcomed us during this life transition. The new members' class we received in our Sunday's meetings each week were wonderful. They filled us with knowledge and made us wish for the week to pass quickly. So on, on Sunday, we could have more of that spiritual nourishment. My wife and I eventually looked forward to entering the temple to have our family sealed for eternity. That happened one year and seven days after my baptism, which was a wonderful moment. I felt if the eternity had been divided at the altar between before and after the ceiling. Living legally on the east coast of the United States for a few years, I was acquainted with the cities, and they were mostly small. When I read or heard about the events leading, leading up to the first vision, a crowd of people was mentioned, and this did not make sense to me. Questions began to arise in my mind. Why did the church have to be restored in the United States and not in Brazil or Italy, the land of my ancestors? Where were those crowds of mentioned people who were involved in revivals or in the confusion of religions, all of which was happening in such a peaceful and calm place? I asked a lot of people about it, but no, got no answer. I read everything in Portuguese and then in English, but found nothing that could calm my heart. I continued to search. In October 1984, I attended the General Conference as a counselor in the state presidency. After, I went to Palmyra, eager to find the answer. Arriving there, I tried to understand why did the restoration have to be here? And why such a spiritual uproar? Where did all people mentioned in Joseph's account came from? Why there? At the time, most reasonable answer to me was because the U.S. Constitution guaranteed freedom. That morning, I visited Grandin Building, where the first Book of Mormon was printed. I went to the sacred grove where I prayed a lot. There was hardly anyone in the street in the small town of Palmyra. Where were the crowds of people Joseph had mentioned? That afternoon I decided to go to the Peter Whitmer's farm. And when I got there, I found a man at the window of the cabin. He had an intense glow in his eyes. I greeted him and then began to ask the same, those same questions. He then asked me, do you have time? I said yes. He explained that the lakes Erie and Ontario and further down the Hudson River were located in that region. In the early 1800s, they decided to build a canal for navigation, which would, would pass through that region. It stretched more than 300 miles to reach the Hudson River. It was a great enterprise for that time, and they could only rely on human labor and animal power. Palmyra was the center of some of that construction. They needed skilled people and technicians. Families and their friends, many people began to pour in from the neighboring towns and places further to, to work in the canal. That was such a sacred spiritual moment because I finally found the crowd. They brought their customs and they, their beliefs. When they mentioned their beliefs, my mind was enlightened, and my spiritual eyes were opened by God. At that moment, I understood how the hand of God our Father 
in his immense wisdom, had prepared his, his plan. A place to bring young Joseph Smith, putting him in the midst of that religious confusion. Because there, in Cumorah, the precious plate of the Book of Mormon were hidden. This was the stage of the Restoration, where the Father's voice would be heard after nearly two millennia in a wonderful vision talking to the boy Joseph Smith, when he went to the sacred grove to pray and heard, This is my beloved son. Hear him. There he sought two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description. Yes, God revealed himself to man again. The darkness that covered the earth began to dissipate. The prophecies of the restoration began to be fulfilled. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on, earth, on the earth, and to every kindred, tongue, and people. In a few short years, Joseph was led to recover to the records of prophecies, covenants, and ordinances left by ancient prophets. Our beloved Book of Mormon. The Church of Jesus Christ could not be restored without the eternal gospel, revealed in the Book of Mormon as another testament of Jesus Christ, even the Son of God, the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. Christ said to his people in Jerusalem, Another sheep I have, which are not of this fold. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, I am known of mine. When leaving the Whitmer's farm, I do not remember saying goodbye. I just remember tears running freely down my face. The sun was setting in a beautiful sky. In my heart was immense joy and peace called my, my soul. I was filled with the gratitude. Now clearly understood why once again the Lord had given me knowledge and light. During the trip home, scripture continued to flow into my mind. The promises made to Father Abraham that in seed all families of the earth would be blessed. And for this temple would be erected so the divine power might be comforted upon man once again on the earth. So that the families could be united not until death do us apart, but together for all eternity. And shall come to pass in the last days that the mount of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. He shall be exalted above all the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. If you who hear me have any question in your heart, do not give up. I invite you to follow the example of the prophet Joseph Smith. When you read in James 1 and 5, if any of you lack of wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. I bear witness that the Lord raised up prophets, seers, and revelators to guide his kingdom these latter days. In his eternal plans, families are meant to be together forever. He cares about his children. He answers our prayers. What happened in Comora was an important part of the restoration as Joseph Smith received the plate which contained the Book of Mormon. This book keeps us get closer to Christ than any other book on earth. Because of this great love he atoned for our sins, he is the Savior of the world. Of this I testify in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> A profound phrase used by King Benjamin in his teachings about the Savior and his atonement has been a recurring topic of my study and pondering for many years. In his spiritually stirring farewell sermon to the people he had served and loved, King Benjamin described the importance of knowing the glory of God and tasting of his love, of receiving a remission of sins, of always remembering the greatness of God and of praying daily and standing steadfastly in the faith. He also promised that by doing these things, ye shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of your sins. My message focuses upon the principle of always retaining a remission of our sins. 
The truth expressed in this phrase can strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and deepen our discipleship. I pray the Holy Ghost will inspire and edify us as we consider together essential spiritual truths. In mortality, we experience physical birth and the opportunity for spiritual rebirth. We are admonished by prophets and apostles to awake unto God, be born again, and become new creatures in Christ by receiving in our lives the blessings made possible through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. The merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah can help us triumph over the self-centered and selfish tendencies of the natural man and become more selfless, benevolent, and saintly. We are exhorted to so live that we can stand spotless before the Lord at the last day. The Prophet Joseph Smith summarized succinctly the essential role of priesthood ordinances in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quote, Being born again comes by the Spirit through ordinances. Close quote. This penetrating statement emphasizes the roles of both the Holy Ghost and sacred ordinances in the process of spiritual rebirth. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. He is a personage of spirit and bears witness of all truth. In the scriptures, the Holy Ghost is referred to as the Comforter, a Teacher, and a Revelator. Additionally, the Holy Ghost is a Sanctifier who cleanses and burns dross and evil out of human souls as though by fire. Holy ordinances are central in the Savior's gospel and in the process of coming unto Him and seeking spiritual rebirth. Ordinances are sacred acts that have spiritual purpose, eternal significance, and are related to God's laws and statutes. All saving ordinances and the ordinance of the sacrament must be authorized by one who holds the requisite priesthood keys. The ordinances of salvation and exaltation administered in the Lord's restored Church are far more than rituals or symbolic performances. Rather, they constitute authorized channels through which the blessings and powers of heaven can flow into our individual lives. And this greater priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. Ordinances received and honored with integrity are essential to obtaining the power of godliness and all of the blessings made available through the Savior's Atonement. To comprehend more fully the process whereby we may obtain and always retain a remission of our sins, we first need to understand the inseparable relationship among three sacred ordinances that provide access to the powers of heaven—baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the sacrament. Baptism is the introductory ordinance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and must be preceded by faith in the Savior and sincere repentance. This ordinance is a sign and a commandment which God has set for His children to enter into His kingdom and is administered in the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. In the process of coming unto the Savior and spiritual rebirth, baptism provides a necessary initial cleansing of our soul from sin. The baptismal covenant includes three fundamental commitments. One, to be willing to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. Two, to always remember Him. And three, to keep His commandments. The promised blessing is that we may always have His Spirit to be with us. Thus, baptism is the essential preparation 
to receive the authorized opportunity for the constant companionship of the third member of the Godhead. Baptism by water must be followed by baptism of the Spirit in order to be complete. As the Savior taught Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Three statements by the Prophet Joseph Smith emphasize the vital linkage between the ordinances of baptism by immersion and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Statement number one. Baptism is a holy ordinance preparatory to the reception of the Holy Ghost. It is the channel and key by which the Holy Ghost will be administered. Statement number two. You might as well baptize a bag of sand as a man, if not done in view of the remission of sins and getting of the Holy Ghost. Baptism by water is but half a baptism and is good for nothing without the other half, that is, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Statement number three. The baptism of water without the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost attending it is of no use. They are necessarily and inseparably connected. The consistent connectedness among the principle of repentance, the ordinances of baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the glorious blessing of the remission of sin is emphasized repeatedly in the scriptures. Nephi declared, For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. The Savior himself proclaimed, Now this is the commandment, Repent and come unto me and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. Laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost is an ordinance administered in the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood. In the process of coming unto the Savior and spiritual rebirth, receiving the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost in our lives creates the possibility of an ongoing cleansing of our soul from sin. This joyous blessing is vital because no unclean thing can dwell with God. As members of the Lord's restored Church, we are blessed both by our initial cleansing from sin associated with baptism and by the potential for an ongoing cleansing from sin made possible through the companionship and power of the Holy Ghost, even the third member of the Godhead. Consider how a farmer depends upon the unchanging pattern of planting and harvesting. Understanding the connection between sowing and reaping is a constant source of purpose and influences all of the decisions and actions a farmer undertakes in all seasons of the year. In like manner, the inseparable connection between the ordinances of baptism by immersion and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost should impact every aspect of our discipleship in all seasons of our lives. The sacrament is the third ordinance necessary to obtain access to the power of godliness. That we might more fully keep ourselves unspotted from the world, we are commanded to go to the house of prayer and offer up our sacraments upon the Lord's holy day. Brothers and sisters, please consider that the emblems of the Lord's body and blood, the bread and the water, are both blessed and sanctified. O God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread or this water to the souls of all those who partake or drink of it. To sanctify is to make pure and holy. The sacramental emblems are sanctified in remembrance of Christ's purity, of our total dependence upon His Atonement, 
and of our responsibility to so honor our ordinances and covenants that we can stand spotless before Him at the last day. The ordinance of the sacrament is a holy and repeated invitation to repent sincerely and to be renewed spiritually. The act of partaking of the sacrament in and of itself does not remit sins. But as we prepare conscientiously and participate in this holy ordinance with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then the promise is that we may always have the Spirit of the Lord to be with us. And by the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost as our constant companion, we can always retain a remission of our sins. We truly are blessed each week by the opportunity to evaluate our lives through the ordinance of the sacrament, to renew our covenants, and to receive this covenant promise. Sometimes Latter-day Saints express the wish that they could be baptized again and thereby become as clean and worthy as the day on which they received their first saving gospel ordinance. May I respectfully suggest that our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son do not intend for us to experience such a feeling of spiritual renewal, refreshment, and restoration just once in our lives. The blessings of obtaining and always retaining a remission of our sins through gospel ordinances help us understand that baptism is a point of departure in our mortal spiritual journey. It is not a destination we should yearn to revisit over and over again. The ordinances of baptism, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the sacrament are not isolated and discrete events. Rather, they are elements in an interrelated and additive pattern of redemptive progress. Each successive ordinance elevates and enlarges our spiritual purpose desire, and performance. The Father's plan, the Savior's atonement, and the ordinances of the gospel provide the grace we need to press forward and progress line upon line and precept upon precept toward our eternal destiny. We are imperfect human beings striving to live in mortality according to Heavenly Father's perfect plan of eternal progression. The requirements of His plan are glorious, merciful, and rigorous. We may at times be filled with determination and at other times feel totally inadequate. We may wonder if we spiritually can ever fulfill the commandment to stand spotless before Him at the last day. With the help of the Lord and through the power of His Spirit to teach us all things, Indeed, we can be blessed to realize our spiritual possibilities. Ordinances invite spiritual purpose and power into our lives as we strive to be born again and become men and women of Christ. Our weaknesses can be strengthened, and our limitations can be overcome. Although none of us can achieve perfection in this life, we can become increasingly worthy and spotless as we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I promise and testify we will be blessed with increased faith in the Savior and greater spiritual assurance as we seek to always retain a remission of our sins and, ultimately, to stand spotless before the Lord at the last day. I so witness in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are grateful for all who have spoken to us this afternoon and for the beautiful music that has been provided. We remind the brethren of the General Priesthood Meeting, which will begin this evening at 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. The nationwide Mormon Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be tomorrow morning from 9.30 to 10 a.m. 
Mountain Daylight Time. The Sunday morning session of conference will immediately follow. The concluding speaker for this session will be Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, I'll go where you want me to go. The benediction will then be offered by Brother Tad R. Collister, Sunday School General President. My brothers and sisters, the irony of being parents is that we tend to really get good at it after our children are grown. I will share with you this afternoon something I wish I had understood better when Barbara and I began to raise our precious children. During my apostolic ministry, I have frequently emphasized the power and importance of Church councils, including mission, stake, and auxiliary councils. I believe councils are the most effective way to get real results. Additionally, I know councils are the Lord's way and that He created all things in the universe through a heavenly council, as mentioned in the Holy Scriptures. Until now, however, I have never talked in general conference about the most basic and fundamental and perhaps the most important of all councils, the family council. Family councils have always been needed. They are, in fact, eternal. We belonged to a family council in the premortal existence when we lived with our heavenly parents as their spirit children. A family council, when conducted with love and with Christ-like attributes, will counter the impact of modern technology that often distracts us from spending quality time with each other and also tends to bring evil right into our homes. Please remember that family councils are different from family home evening held on Mondays. Home evenings focus primarily on gospel instruction and family activities. Family councils, on the other hand, can be held on any day of the week, and they are primarily a meeting at which parents listen to each other and to their children. I believe there are at least four types of family councils. First, a general family council consisting of the entire family. Second, an executive family council consisting of a mother and a father. Third, a limited family council consisting of parents and one child. And fourth, a one-on-one family council consisting of one parent and one child. In all of these family council settings, electronic devices need to be turned off so everyone can look at and listen to each other. During family councils and at other appropriate times, you may want to have a basket for the electronic devices. So when the family gathers, everyone, including mom and dad, can deposit their phones, tablets, MP3 players in the basket. Thereafter, they can counsel together without being tempted to respond to a poke on Facebook, text, Instagram, Snapchat, and email alerts. Let me briefly share with you how each of these types of family councils can work. First, the full family council includes all family members. The Church pamphlet entitled Our Family states, quote, This council can meet to discuss family problems, work out finances, make plans, support, and strengthen each other and pray for one another and the family unit. Close quote. This council should meet at a pre-designated time and is normally more formal than any other type of family council. It should start with a prayer, or it may simply be a natural extension of conversations already started in other settings. Please note that a family council may not always have a formal beginning or ending. 
When parents are prepared and children listen and participate in the discussion, the family council is truly working. No matter what our particular family situation is, it is critical that we understand the unique circumstances of each family member. Though we may share DNA, there may be situations and circumstances among us that may make us vastly different from each other and which may require the compassionate collaboration of the Family Council. For example, all the talking and sharing and loving in the world may not solve a medical problem or an emotional challenge that one or more family member may be facing. At such times, the Family Council becomes a place of unity, loyalty, and loving support as outside help is enlisted in the search for solutions. Siblings, especially older ones, can be powerful mentors to young children if parents will use the Family Council to enlist their help and support during times of difficulty and duress. In this way, a family is much like a ward. When the bishop involves ward council members, he can solve problems and accomplish a lot of good in ways he never could do without their help. In a similar fashion, parents need to involve all family members in dealing with challenges and adversity. That way, the power of the family council is put to work. When council members feel they are part of a decision, they become supporters and specific positive results can be accomplished. Now, not every family council consists of two parents and children. Your family council may look very different than our family council looked when we were raising our seven children. Today, our family council consists only of Barbara and me. Unless we hold an extended family council that includes our adult children, their spouses, and sometimes our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, it becomes a big council. Those who are single and even students living away from home can follow the divine council pattern by gathering with friends and roommates the council together. Consider how the atmosphere in an apartment would change if roommates gathered regularly to pray, listen, discuss, and plan things together. Everyone can adapt a family council to take advantage of this divine pattern established by our loving Heavenly Father. As noted previously, from time to time an expanded family council may be helpful. An expanded family council can be composed of grandparents and adult children who are not living at home. Even if grandparents or adult children live far away, they can participate in family councils via the telephone, Skype, or FaceTime. You may want to consider holding the general family council on Sunday, which is the first day of the week. Families can review the past week and plan for the coming week. This may be exactly what your family needs to help make the Sabbath a delightful experience. The second type of family council is the executive family council. That involves only parents. During this time together, parents can review each other, each child's physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, and their progress. The Executive Family Council is also a good time for wives and husbands to talk about their personal relationships with each other. When Elder Harold B. Lee performed our sealing, he taught us a principle that I believe all couples will find helpful. He said, Never retire without kneeling together, holding hands, and saying your prayers. Such prayers invite Heavenly Father to counsel us by the power of the Spirit. The third type of family council is a limited family council. Here both parents spend time with an individual child in a formal or an informal setting. This is an opportunity for a discussion on 
making decisions in advance about such things as what he or she will or will not do in the future. When such decisions are made, they may want to record them for future reference if needed. If your son or daughter sees you as a staunch supporter, this council meeting can establish goals and objectives for the future. This is also a time to carefully listen to serious concerns and challenges that a child may have faced with such things as the lack of confidence, abuse, bullying, or fear. The fourth type of family council is a one-on-one family council involving one parent and one child. This type of family council generally happens, uh, just happens. For example, the parent and child can take advantage of informal opportunities while traveling in the car or working around the house. An outing with one child with either father or mother can provide a special spiritual and emotional bonding time. Calendar those in advance so children can anticipate and look forward to a special time alone with mom or with dad. Now, brothers and sisters, there was a time when the walls of our homes provided all the defense we needed against outside intrusions. We locked the doors, closed the windows, and we shut the gates, and we felt safe and secure and protected in our own little refuge from the outside world. Those days are now gone. The physical walls, doors, fences, and gates of our homes cannot prevent unseen invasion from the Internet, the Wi-Fi, the mobile phones, the networks. They can penetrate our homes with just a few clicks and keystrokes. Fortunately, the Lord has provided a way to counter the invasion of negative technology that can distract us from spending quality time with each other. He has done this by providing the Council system to strengthen, protect, safeguard, and nurture our most precious relationships. Children desperately need parents willing to listen to them, and the Family Council can provide a time during which family members can learn to understand and love one another. Alma taught, Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. Inviting the Lord to be part of our family council through prayer will improve our relationships with each other. We can, with Heavenly Father and our Savior's help, become more patient, thoughtful, helpful, forgiving, understanding as we pray for help. With their help, we can make our homes a little bit of heaven here on earth. A family council that is patterned after the councils in heaven, filled with Christ-like love and guided by the Lord's Spirit, will help us to protect our family from distractions that can steal our precious time together and protect us from the evils of the world. Combined with prayer, a family council will invite the presence of the Savior as He promised. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Inviting the Spirit of the Lord to be part of your family council brings blessings beyond description. Finally, please remember that a family council held regularly will help us root family problems and spot them and root them out very, very much more quickly. They will give each family member a feeling of worth and importance. And most of all, they will assist us to be more successful and happy in our precious relationships within the walls of our own homes. May our Heavenly Father bless all of our families as we counsel together is my humble prayer. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.
Our Father in heaven, we're most grateful for the outpouring of the Spirit that we felt that's confirmed the doctrinal truths we've heard this day. We're grateful for those who've been sustained and pledged our hearts and minds and spirits to them and their work. 
We're so grateful for the atoning sacrifice of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and that it gives meaning and purpose and hope to each of our lives. And we're grateful for the gifts of the Spirit. And pray that we might have the gifts individually and collectively of faith in Jesus Christ, an unwavering faith, of humility that will help us submit our will to thy will, and of those gifts that will help us to be more thoughtful spouses, wiser and more discerning parents, and more devoted disciples of thee and thy Son, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. This has been a broadcast of the 186th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session was provided by a choir comprised of students attending BYU-Idaho. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. The 186th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will be here soon. Now, a word from Affiliate Solar. Some civilizations have worshipped it. Some have used it to predict the future. We can use it to protect our families. Now more than ever, the sun has become important to our future. You have the ability to harness the sun's energy and turn it into a power source for everyday living and emergency use during a disaster. Avoid the catastrophe and become self-reliant. Don't get caught off guard. Let Affiliate Solar help you get prepared today. Affiliate Solar, a leader in commercial and residential solar sales and installations, uses the latest technology to deliver the power of the sun, giving you the ability to own own a solar energy system for less than your current electric bill. Affiliate Solar will match or beat any competitor's pricing. Visit AffiliateSolar.com or call 844-500-7652 today to get your free solar quote. Looking to protect your home or business with state-of-the-art security and automation? The only smart choice for a smart home is Mountain Alarm. Door-to-door solicitors and large cable companies can't offer the custom solutions and quality service Mountain Alarm provides. Locally owned and operated since 1952, Mountain Alarm provides the best security and home automation available. Backed by better customer service, lower pricing, and Alarm.com, the leading provider of smart home technology. And their 24-7 monitoring has earned the highest rating in the industry. Get text or email alerts in the event of an alarm or view live and recorded video on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. You can even remotely control your thermostat, lights, garage doors, and more right from the Alarm.com mobile app. Call 1-866-253-7620 today for a free assessment of your home or business. Mention KSL and you'll get a free smart thermostat and one month of free monitoring with a new or upgraded system. Trust what matters most to the experts at Mountain Alarm and call 1-866-253-7620 today. On July 23, 1967, about 2,000 people